Welcome to Unwinding. I'm your host, Alex Folsom. And this week we have Foundation Distinguished Professor in the Department of Chemistry, who also has appointments in the School of Engineering for Mechanical Engineering and Biomedical Engineering, Dr. Steven Soper. Um, and we have on the line our producer, Grace Fawcett. Grace, how are you? I'm doing pretty well this morning. How are you? I'm doing all right. We were just talking about this is a very early record for us. Yeah. Start time before <laughs> 9 a.m. So yeah. we're usually a, you know, 11 a.m. and after recording. Afternoon. Yeah. yeah. Afternoon. <laughs> We've got a little time to warm up, but we're excited about this one. Um, Dr. Soper is a very highly regarded, you know, engineer and chemist and he is going to talk to us today about all of his work with developing a COVID test based on some of the work he's been doing to create products to diagnose cancers and other medical ailments. So as always, you can find us on Spotify where you'd be great if you followed us so you get all these episodes right away. And you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, all those places. Please, please, please subscribe. That really helps us. And um, as Grace said last time, please review us. Give us five-star reviews so we start showing up. That really helps <laughs> us out. All right, Grace, you ready to start this episode? I'm ready. Let's do it. Let's do it. All right, we're here today with Dr. Steven Soper, who is a foundation distinguished professor in the Department of Chemistry, who also has appointments in the School of Engineering in Mechanical Engineering and Biomedical Engineering. Dr. Soper, thank you for being here today. Thank you for having me. We're really excited to talk to you. Um, before we get into what you've been working on recently with your team, uh, we kind of like to get a little history on you. So, you know, what is it that made you first want to get into pursuing research as a career? Yeah, and actually, that's pretty easy. I, I took several chemistry classes as a as an undergraduate student at the University of Nebraska at Omaha. And then I decided to do graduate studies at University of Kansas in Lawrence. And that really got me fired up about doing research in the life sciences domain. So I'm kind of an interesting individual. Uh, I got my PhD in chemistry, but I've been doing a lot of biomedical related research ever since the start of my career, which was in about 1992. What was it that, you know, got you more into the biomedical stuff instead of following the path of engineering that you had kind of going already? Yeah, so I was fortunate enough to work under the uh, auspices of Dr. Uh, Ted Kawana uh, in 1985 through 1989. And we were doing basically bioanalytical type things, activities, where we were developing assays for detecting different diseases. And when I left KU in 1990, uh, I went to Los Alamos National Laboratory and I got involved in the Human Genome Project, where I was developing new sequencing, DNA, RNA sequencing technologies. And then picked up from that, I just kept building on those applications. I got into uh, went to Louisiana State University for several years, and then to University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, where I entered the biomedical engineering department there and worked on cancer diagnostics. We've been working in cancer diagnostics, gosh, ever since right around 1995 and building lab on what's called lab on a chip devices specifically for cancer diagnostics. And it was really interesting because of the fact that all the work that we were doing in cancer diagnostics 
we took some of the chips that we have been developing it and developing for that area and repurposed some of those chips to translate directly into the COVID-19 domain. So they really, there's a little great synergy between the cancer diagnostics and what we're doing right now with the SARS-CoV-2 and the COVID-19 test that we're currently engaged in. You know, I want to talk a little bit about uh, your history as a researcher. So you were at Louisiana State and then North Carolina uh, at Chapel Hill, and then you came to KU. What was it that brought you to KU? Okay, well, that's an easy answer, too. <laughs> I'm a Jayhawk. <laughs> <laughs> Good answer. Ninety. Uh, I I was I always love to tell this story. I was on the campus of UNC Chapel Hill for five years, and guess what? I never got rid of my crimson and blue. I always wore <laughs> my Jayhawk stuff. Never rooted for the Tar Heels, and as such, I never got invited to basketball parties. <laughs> but yeah, I, I it was a great opportunity to come to KU. They made a, a great and large investment in me. I'm so gracious uh, of that. I'm happy to be back in Lawrence. I've had great interact because I'm a biomedical engineer. I've had great interactions with people at at the medical center and not just on our COVID-19 work, but cancer, stroke, other diseases too that we're frantically working on as well to really help healthcare for uh, people not only in Kansas, but nationwide and internationally as well. So with this kind of, you know, how do you first kind of d- develop this this testing that you're doing? If I understand it correctly, and I am not one a chemist at all or a uh, you know biomechanical engineer, so I'm I'm curious when you when you were I read the article that you were in recently in um, KU News talking about the work you've been doing with with COVID, and it sounds like you have a device that's a you described about the size of an iPhone. And mm-hmm. with it, you can put into it these, um, did you call them tabs or like chips? chips. That's right, chips. And chips so salad. with some saliva on there, you can then process that to see what kind of cells are in your saliva. Is that correct? So pretty good. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I'll give you a passing grade on that. <laughs> um, I know the semester is already almost ready to start. So at any rate, so yeah, uh, basically here's what happens, Alex, is, is that we have a little handheld instrument that a plastic chip fits into. This plastic chip will then accept a saliva sample from an individual. And from that saliva sample, it'll gather up the virus particles. These are particles, maybe about one, one hundredth the diameter of a human hair. Wow. And we gather those up out of the saliva sample. And then what we do is we gather up those virus particles uh, and we count them one by one to figure out how many virus particles are in that saliva sample. And Alex, what that tells us is yes, you have COVID-19 because how we gather up those virus particles is very specific for what's called SARS-CoV-2. That's the virus particles that give rise to our uh, to COVID-19. We specifically gather those up, we count them one by one, we can determine viral load. And here's what's really unique. There's other tests that can do this, but here's what's really unique about our test. We can tell if a patient 
is infectious or not. Many of the other tests like the antibody test, the antigen test, or this PCR test only tell the individual that they have the disease, not if they're in an active state, which means they're infectious. And what does that mean? That means that what we'll be able to do with this test is decide how long to keep people in quarantine. So if you're tested positive, not right now, the CDC guidelines is you, no matter where you are in the evolution of your disease, if you're infected, you're quarantined for 10 days from the minute they detect it. What we'll be able to tell people is, yeah, you do have the disease, and but you're not in an active contagious state anymore. So there's really no need to uh, quarantine that individual. So do you know if it's like, is it more likely that they are on the tail end of having the virus or are there a few days after you could test positive that you aren't contagious yet? Yeah, Grace, well, that's a good question. And, and you know, it, it, this is what's so notorious about this disease. Some patients are symptomatic, some are asymptomatic. So they may be moving along and maybe they, they're, they start getting, they start getting a fever, let's say, for example, but 10 days after they've been infected, they go in and get a, a PCR test and say, yes, you're infected, quarantine for 14 days or 10 days, whatever the CDC recommends. What we'll be able to say is, yes, you have been infected and yes, you are contagious. You can continuously take our test to figure out when you're not contagious anymore so you can get out of quarantine. Even though you're positive for the test, I need to underscore this, even though you're positive by any test that's currently out on the market, that does not mean you're contagious. Mm -hmm. So with this one, obviously, you know, you're doing it at home. That's the first thing that's much different than a lot of the tests that are out there. And then the second is, so it sounds like instead of it, you know, I understand disease testing for most things, you get a swab of someone's mucous membrane, whether it's in their nose or their throat or the saliva test, and then you you have it where it reacts with another agent. Is that correct? Yeah, basically, that's correct. So will this make this, because, you know, you don't need one, a laboratory, and two, um, you know, the reagent that it's going to react with, is that does that mean that this will ultimately be something that's probably cheaper in the long run for people to do than to go to a lab test? Yes, absolutely. Well, and more importantly, convenient, Mm -hmm. right? Okay, so all of us now at KU, even me, just took my saliva test because we're starting the semester next week. I had to go to the union at the parking lot and and do this. It's it's inconvenient. So if, if this little test can end up in your home, I could be testing myself every week because I'm going to be interacting with students to make sure I don't contract or have the disease. So, and this is the other thing you need to remember. So since the beginning of last semester, which was August, I've been tested three times, three times, uh, which is, which is good. And I was negative. Last time I was tested was last week, which I was negative. Okay. That's good. But that doesn't mean I'm negative now. And that was testing one week ago. And that's what's so terrible about this, this uh, dilemma or the COVID-19 is, is that people think, oh, I'm negative. I can go out and party or have some fun now because I'm negative. And 
you know, as soon as they go to the bar or the restaurant, they may get infected almost immediately of no uh, consequence. You know, that's not their fault. It's just that's what happens. So mm -hmm. something at home will allow you to continuously test yourself and make sure you are not contagious. And the other thing, too, is, is that, again, you can do this frequently. The handheld instrument, we assume, will cost about $50 for the handheld it's not a disposable. And then the little chips that go into the handheld, little plastic chips that are about one inch by one inch, uh, they're gonna sell for about five to $10. And you can continuously test yourself. You can test yourself every day if you wanted. Uh, that's what the accessibility that will be allowed uh, with this particular platform that we're developing here at KU. So let's just think about what that means for KU, the landscape of KU. You could have this at dormitories. So mm -hmm. kids coming in, students, kids, students coming into the dormitories could be tested on a regular basis if there's some issue that they may be having. Uh, you could have one of these units at uh, the basketball games to test people as they're coming in. You can spot check people. You can have them at the football games. Uh, you can have them even at the buildings to spot check people before they come into the buildings. This is gonna really expand the uh, testing capabilities and really do online testing. That means every day, restaurants could do this, bars could do this. It's, it's so simple to operate anyone can actually carry out the test without needing some specialist in order to do that. That's how it's going to change the landscape, especially at KU. So, you know, with this kind of product, I'm assuming that, you know, if we're fortunately, or hopefully we don't have another pandemic like this for a very long time, but if there were to be a different disease that came up, is this something that you would be able to tweak the way your, your product works so that people could test for that at home as well? Yes, absolutely. So if you go back and look at the history of the COVID-19, uh, the first infection in the U.S. happened in January 2020. And when did we start ramping up testing? We're doing lots of tests now, which is great. But how long did it take to do that? Mm -hmm. About five to six months to really ramp up testing. That's because there was no resources in stockpile in order to immediately do testing. Our chips can be stored indefinitely. And for example, the government could buy millions and millions and millions of our chips uh, and they could easily be accommodated or changed to look for a new type of virus and go roll out one or two weeks after the new virus or the pandemic has hit. So instead of five to six months, we're talking one to two weeks, and that's going to just mean tremendous things instead of in getting a handle on the uh, spread of the disease. And that would be a, a tremendous capability. The other thing, too, is all these tests that I've talked about, these antibody, antigen, PCR tests, they require all these reagents. We have none, zero. The little chip comes with its element to attach onto the SARS-CoV-2 virus particles, and then you're ready to go. It, it's as simple as that. So is the chip itself, is it like a plastic material? Um, you know, is it, what's it kind of look like when you're like, you said it's one inch by one inch, but is it just 
look like a sheet of plastic? Yep. Yep. Absolutely. It's plexiglass. Mm. I, I mean, everyone's heard of plexiglass. That's exactly what it is. It's a piece of plastic that's been injection molded. So, uh, Alex and Grace, the, the, okay, I think you remember CDs, DVDs, and Blu-ray. <laughs> yes. Remember those? They're injection molded. And that's exactly the way this chip is made via injection molding. So there's production lines for making these Blu-ray discs already in place. They're, they're now being used to make these plastic chips that we're using in our test. And we have a, uh, an entity, a commercial entity that's going to mass produce our chips. They'll be able to produce 1.5 million chips per month. Using wow. Oh my gosh. And at, at about $1 to $2 per chip. You know, that's something really interesting as that's part of this too, is that I don't think we talk about a lot in the world of academia is the ability as a researcher to partner with a company who can do something like that for you. So how do you as a researcher take what you've been doing in your lab and then get it out into a place like this where it's actually being produced? Yeah, absolutely. And, and let me just tell you that when you look at the commercialization of the invention, it's harder than actually doing the science and <laughs> discovery of the science. It is, and, yeah. and it's a big, big job, especially at the grandiose scale that we're talking about and the speed at which it needs to be uh, percolated into the private sector. So for example, you know, what the, the federal agency that's supporting our work, they want us within three or four months to ramp up to about a million tests per month. Um, and what that means is that we can't, you know, as, a, as an academician or a, research, a university research professor, we don't have the capacity to do that. There's no way we can do that. So especially because these have to be compliant with the Food and Drug Administration. So we have a commercial partner, and this is a company I founded in 2011 for uh, cancer diagnostics, and they're working on ramping up the production and the commercialization and distribution of the test. This company is called Biofluidica Incorporated, and they're right now positioned in uh, San Diego, California. That's their headquarters, but they have an advanced research office on the KU campus as well. So they're doing the commercialization, the marketing, the production ramp up, getting the partners lined up to do production so we can do this quickly. So we are working right now. We just completed a first go through on clinical samples. We ran 20 clinical samples and our results were tremendous, exactly what we expected. Now we have a 200 sample set uh, that we're going to be running for uh, emergency use authorization from the Food and Drug Administration. So we're looking to hopefully get our tests out by the beginning of the third quarter of 2021. Wow, so that would be coming up at the end of this summer, correct? Yeah. Yes. Yes, sir. So wouldn't that be great is when you, we came back on campus for the fall semester, we're using a test that was developed at KU to get us back on the campus. That would be amazing. You know, and I think that was something interesting you said in the article with KU News is that, you know, a lot of people are starting to think with a vaccine out there, 
that we're not going to need testing going forward or testing is not going to be important. That's something you pointed out that we are going to need to continue to test for this disease and other diseases. And that this is something that is going to be very important going forward. You know, I also want to talk a little bit about how do you pivot? You know, you were doing cancer uh, diagnosis and you were looking at other ways that stuff like this can be used to, to kind of deal with diseases that we've had for a long time. How do you pivot so quickly to, to make it focus on, on COVID-19? So I, I can easily answer that too. We had not one bit of data in April of 2020, not one. We, we got together a group of people, we brainstormed, brainstormed, uh, put forward a couple uh, proposals of the federal government. And in July, we got funded for this. So you also have to remember that the, the research enterprise on the KU campus was closed in March April and May. We got back in the lab in June, and I'm lucky enough to have committed KU graduate students who work 24-7 to get results delivered for this. And you know, it's it's their commitment uh, that we were able to get this done. I mean, they were working like crazy, not only the graduate students, but as I said in that little piece, undergraduate students too. We had a couple undergraduate students working in the lab too this fall, trying to collect data. And, and you know what, I, I, I must say, they can't work remotely. They have to be in the lab. And this summer when we knew little about the COVID-19 and how it spread, they were still coming to work every single day, working throughout the day and night to get results uh, on the table. And doing this with social distancing, uh, masks, and uh, what have you. So we had to work in shifts because we couldn't all be in the lab at once. So it was not easy to do this. And to my to the students' credit, they were able to get that accomplished. They worked under the most non-ideal conditions to get some really compelling results. You know, and when we did the I Am Seeking feature with you back in, um, I wanna say that was 2019 at this point, 2018 maybe, you made a big point to point out how important it is to you to work with students and to help students, you know, get into the lab environment. You know, can you kind of talk about why that's so important to you to, to make sure students are involved in the work you're doing? Oh, well, it's not just my work. It's all research work that's going on at KU campus, on the KU campus, uh, in the medical center too. Uh, you, you know what, there's nothing, there's, a, you know, as an academician, especially on a college campus, getting involved in activities on campus are so important. Whether you're an athlete, whether you're on the debate team, whether you're doing civil service work or research work, you know, that's just, and, and you know, that, that, that's just servicing not just the KU community and increasing our visibility, but it's helping the community, correct? Everything that the students do on campus, not just learn what they're learning, but then also applying what they learn to different walks of life is really compelling. And it just sets a good, uh, it's a, sets a good perspective on being in college and the great work that students, both undergraduate and graduate students do for our community. Uh, it's just, it's, it's amazing to be honest with you. And I think they really learn that, they respect that opportunity whether they're working on a new diagnostic for colon cancer or for a diagnostic for stroke or a diagnostic for COVID-19. 
they all thoroughly enjoy that. And they're doing something to service society. So, you know, I want to talk a little bit about the test for cancer and stroke. Are those similar to this type of test? And if so, how do those work? Oh, yeah. And that's exactly right, because hopefully as soon as possible, this COVID issue will go away. It might take a couple of years, but it'll go away. And then what are we going to do with all this learn, learning and discoveries we made? What are we going to do with all that information? Are we just going to throw it away? No, absolutely not. So we are, I just, I, I just submitted a big proposal grant yesterday to the National Institutes of Health to take what we've learned from the COVID-19 and apply it to different diseases, stroke, cystic fibrosis, radiation uh, exposure, uh, cancer that actually changes the way the chip works little, a little bit, and then it, it can be applied to other diseases. For example, the way we, we, instead of viral particles for one of the cancer diseases, we're looking at what's called nanovesicles. And cells like cancer cells release nanovesicles that can actually be used for diagnosis of different cancer diseases. So we've used our exact same assay to screen patients for ovarian cancer. And we have some very nice results to show that the same COVID test that we've developed can be used to screen patients for ovarian cancer. And this is someone we're working on with people at the medical center at KU. Nothing really changes except one little component in the chip. The chip doesn't change, except there's this element in the chip that recognizes specifically different type of diseased particles. That's fascinating. I, you know, is that, is this something that, you know, I'm curious where within, you know, your, your work and your research over the years that you've been doing this, where do you start to realize that this is something that we could be doing you know, th- with this kind of testing to take it out of labs and give it to, you know, these chips that are more efficient. And it sounds like the you get the results very quickly. I think you said 15 minutes or something like that yeah. in the article. So, where, you know, how, where, at what point do you kind of start to realize, like, this is something that we can to do that's more efficient? You know, I, I'm imagining it's a career long goal to get to something like this. Oh, yes, absolutely. Uh, yeah, Alex, we've been working on renditions of this since 1995. And, you know, we, we report on these results. We've used these chips in the cancer regime for about 10 years now. And they, they're well-received in the community. They, they make nice publications. We get money from the federal government to support this work, but they're slow to move into the commercial sector. It takes many, many years to get a diagnostic test for a cancer disease accepted by the community, by the medical community and by the Food and Drug Administration. Many years, guess what's happened? COVID-19 has scared everyone, rightfully so. Now things are getting through. People are much more aware of technical things around them than they used to be. It's almost like the DNA typing, uh, DNA forensics. You know, with the O.J. Simpson case, people learned about DNA forensics and how that can identify people. People got very interested in that. Now with this COVID thing, people are understanding molecular testing, chip-based technology, and how that can really help improve 
uh, the management of certain diseases. So this is going to be high on people's radar screen. You're going to see a plethora of different techniques now coming to bear on different diseases. And in particular, think about this. When, when, what is one of the big things when people are, are sick nowadays, what are they doing? And I just did this a couple of weeks ago. They're not physically going into the doctor's office. They're doing telemedicine, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. They're talking with their doctors over the telephone. Okay. That's what they're doing. And, but the problem is they have to come in and do the tests. Mm-hmm. So the doctor has something to talk to them about. Now we're actually creating um, an opportunity where people can do the tests at home, report this back to the doctor, and then do uh, telemedicine to talk about the results from that test without ever having to come to the doctor's office. And this is extremely important for a state like Kansas, which has a high rural number percentage of people in rural communities. Mm -hmm. Now they don't have to drive to Kansas City, Kansas, the medical center for cancer treatment, they can do it wherever they are in Western Kansas and not sacrifice the quality of care that they're getting. That's amazing. So this is this, the field of medicine is going to change dramatically from COVID-19. And you know, I always try to paint as rosy as a picture as I can. This has been a dreadful uh, pandemic, dreadful. People have died. It's terrible. But new vaccines are coming out rapidly new technologies are being developed. And this is really going to have effect on healthcare moving forward. I think it is kind of interesting because, you know, especially when you talk about the vaccine, that's something that I've heard people say has been in development for more than a decade. And now we're able to get it out there and, and really see how it can work in the population. And it's interesting to hear you talk about how this is something you've been working on for 25 plus years and it took something like this to really get it going and up and operational. But it's it's a lifetime of work. It's not something that someone thinks up, you know, immediately. And I think that speaks to the importance of a place like KU or a research institution where there are people constantly working and tweaking and trying out these things so that when there are these issues, there are things that we can do to tackle them. You know, I'm kind of interested as a if, with you as a researcher what is it when you're kind of dealing with that slog where there's not really the people who are jumping on the bandwagon with these new ideas? What is it that keeps you motivated and going as you're still pushing to get these things out there and commercialize them in a way that is effective? Uh, well, that's an easy answer to uh, helping people. I, I, you know, that's my number one motto, help people. You know, I, 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 you know, we've had people at KU pass from COVID-19. That's terrible. I've had colleagues pass away from COVID-19. It, it's dreadful. I've had, you know, my pe- people in my family, my, my parents pass away from cancer, colon cancer. And, and it's real, I'm working hard to try to help people not have to go through the, those losses. That's what makes this, that's what drives me. And, and I try to teach that to my students as well. You know, it's, it's, it's nice to get a paper published but if you can get something out in the market that's going to really help people, that's tremendous. And that's, I think, more university-based research is moving in that direction. It's called translational research, where you don't just make a discovery, publish a paper, and then move on. You see that you stay on board with that technology and get it into the, uh, into the public domain so it can help people. That's awesome. I think that's an amazing way to look at your research and what you've been doing. One one last little bit, you know, if 
if there are students out there who are listening to this or just anyone who's interested in this, is there a way that, you know, they can, you know, especially with thinking of students who want to kind of maybe follow in your path and get in this, this research world, what, what kind of advice would you have for them, you know, to, to follow in your footsteps? Yeah. So, and, and that's an easy answer too. like what you do. I, I mean, I, I mean, I, <laughs> I put in extraordinary hours. It's not because I hate going to work. It's because I can't put my work down. I love it. So if you like, if you like what you're doing, then everything will fall in place. Like what you're doing, be committed and things will happen for you. So I, I think that's the easiest thing to say. A lot of people don't like work, the kind of things we do. And that I, that's fine. I appreciate that. But find something that you do like and really get committed to it and follow it through. And boy, you will be a successful individual. And it's not just based upon financial outcomes. It's based upon, you know, um, you'll be excited about what you're doing and uh, committed to your job. And boy, just, uh, I mean, you'll have positive outcomes. There's no doubt about that. And that's what I've done my entire career. Ever since I've left KU, I enjoyed KU so terribly much as a graduate student. It's just trickled in to what I do for the last 30 years. We love to hear that. And I think it's, you know, it's something that I think comes through when you talk about your research. We can, I can feel that you enjoy what you do and that you love talking about it and that it's something that you, you can't, like you said, you can't put down. I can feel that when you're talking about it. Well, Dr. Soper, we really, really appreciate you being here today. I want to be respectful of your time. Um, is there anything else you'd like to, to hit on before we get out of here? Oh, yes. And I say this to everyone that I've talked to, please. If, when you get the opportunity, get vaccinated. <laughs> <laughs> That's so important because, you know, even if you don't think it's going to help you, uh, it will, believe it or not, <laughs> but you're going to help others too. So I would just encourage everyone to get vaccinated. It's safe and it's going to help you in the long run and your family too. That's for sure. That's great advice. Have, have you had the opportunity to get vaccinated? No, but I'm following it very carefully. Grace. <laughs> as soon as my turn comes up. I'm going to do it. Uh, and and the other thing too is is this is so important for me because you know my age and, and a comorbidity, but also I'm anxious to get back into the classroom to work mm -hmm. with students. I, I mean, there's nothing better to do than when I'm up teaching and talking to students. I can see their faces. Mm -hmm. Doing that on Zoom, so for example, I'd much rather us be in a room talking together than mm -hmm. doing Zoom, but I understand the, the issues with that. But getting back in the classroom, nothing beats the learning experience than being on campus and being in the classroom. And that's what I'm looking forward to. Yeah, I'm excited to be back on campus. Um, you know, they sent us home as staff March, I want to say March 11th or something like that. And we're quickly coming up on a year and I know we will not be back, you know, for a long time. So it's, 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 I miss being on campus and being connected to everyone. Yeah, absolutely. It's a beautiful campus anyway. That's true. And, <laughs> it is. And we're coming up on spring when it's the most beautiful. So I'm, I'm really sad. I won't be there every day. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Soper. We really appreciate you being here and uh, taking the time to talk to us. And I'm excited to see what else you're able to do with the work you've been doing. Well, thank you so much, Alex, for taking the time to talk with me. And Grace, thank you as well. Great. Thank you. Have a good day. You too. Bye. Bye.
Meeting is a production by KU's College of Liberal Arts and Sciences. The College of Liberal Arts and Sciences is the heart of KU. It's home to more than 50 departments, programs, and centers, offering more than 100 majors, minors, and certificates. A collaborative and creative community, the college is committed to making the world better through inquiry and research. Unwinding is a podcast that tells the human stories driving the minds and talents of the University of Kansas. In each episode, we sit down with KU researchers to chat about what they're working on, why they're passionate about it, why it matters, and what makes them tick as humans. The conversation explores the fascinations and motivations that produce new discoveries.